Welcome to Terrible, a Canadian true crime podcast. I'm Marie. And I'm Renee. We're two friends that discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare ourselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcasts will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. If you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can find us on Etsy and look us up at Terrible True Crime. We also have a Patreon if you want some extra bonus episodes. And the last thing is that it really helps when you rate the show and leave a comment or review wherever you listen. All right, let's get into some updates. Our new podcast stuff is officially in for both of us, so we're excited. We hope we're sounding a little bit better. We feel we feel professional again. It's like we it's like we're starting fresh. Yeah, it feels good. Um, a lot going on. We're heading to Ottawa this weekend for a wedding, so we're really looking forward to that. And I'll get to see Marie while I'm there, so that's Yay. always nice. The other thing I wanted to tell you guys about is just because my bad luck is kind of continuing. Oh no! So I told you guys that I smashed my phone to like yeah. a bajillion pieces of sharded glass. That's been fixed. But then the other night, I turned our Roomba on to just, you know, go through and and clean for me because I wasn't going to vacuum myself. And we have a really long body mirror that just sits on the floor. And usually the Roomba doesn't affect it at all. Sitting in bed and I just hear like, bam, crash. I'm like, oh God. Oh my God. I'm thinking (sighs) the Roomba knocked over the mirror. It's not a big deal. Our our island, our kitchen island is right there. So the mirror would just fall and sort of like lean onto the island. It wouldn't fall to like the ground. There's no way it's broken. (gasps) Guys. Was there glass everywhere? Everywhere. A huge body mirror just shattered. And I guess there's like some kind of film so that when it, if it does break, it does. But I think it made it worse because the shards that were coming out were so tiny. Oh no. It was, it was the worst. How <laughs> bad was that to clean up? Especially with two pets at home. I would have been so scared to I not. I was like cornering them off yeah. and then I vacuumed and then I swept and then I had the Roomba go around again to try and pick up anything I could have missed. Oh man. So yeah, so the bad luck continues. <laughs> this is the second thing I've shattered and also mirror shattering what is that seven years of bad luck they say seven years maybe so you've got a while longer to go for me like i mentioned a few episodes ago football sundays started or football games started so it's more fun when you watch football if you bet so i started betting uh first game i lost all my money it was like 50 bucks i was like whatever it is what it is it was fun that's but big then for you. i feel like that's is. big for you to be like it is what it is it is what it is but it, it made the watching the game more fun right yeah um, for sure but then the other night i won like 80 bucks so i was so like you made your 50 back plus yeah that's yeah so exciting yeah so that's what i've been up to so now i'm like always on the app just like looking like okay what game's next you know i'm like hopefully this doesn't turn into a gambling addiction but i think i'm fine because, <laughs> <We'll see you. laughs> because i don't like spending money especially on like stupid stuff like that but i'll probably just wait till like i lose my streak and then you know that's probably it for me 
Okay, so last week I told you guys that I would look into, um, or I would, I really wanted to know this information. I don't really know if anyone else cared, but um, I, I kind of forced it on you. <laughs> like, Marie will look it up. <laughs> I looked into like penalties for false confessions, and I realized there's much more to false confessions than just like, hey, I did it for clout, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> there's like mental health issues, there's uh, coercion, there's a bunch of different reasons why someone would do a false confession. So after 10 minutes, I was like, okay, uh, sorry, I'm not back in school. There's no way I can do this. <laughs> Instead, I somehow came across a crime update. So 26 year old man from Mississauga is facing first degree murder charge after a woman was fatally stabbed at a Canadian tire. <gasps> I saw that. Did you see that? Well, I just saw the headline. Was yeah. it like were so, they employees or well, you're there's, gonna tell me? I'm yeah, there's asking. there's really like no information. It happened, I think, two days ago. Um, but it happened around 6 p.m. on Monday. So on the 19th, police were called to the Canadian Tire reports of a man and a woman that were injured. The man was where is the suspect who's getting charged now, and the woman was pronounced dead on scene. Her identity hasn't been released yet because they're waiting to notify the next of kin. So I'm like Imagine seeing the headlines like you're like, just that's being like rough. holy shit. Yeah. And then you get a phone call and you're like, like that's my sister. That's my yeah. whatever. <gasps> that's hard. That's, that's so literally funny. all the information that's out yet. But you can bet I'm going to be keeping us updated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need to know. Canadian Tire release 6 p.m. That's scary. We were just talking about Canadian Tire in our Patreon episode, too. Yeah. We were talking about Canadian Tire money. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. My parents Canadian- met at a Canadian Tire. They worked there and they met and fell in love with Canadian Tire. Shut Did up. You know Are you that? serious? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Work. We need to call it them and be like, job. we need yeah. to be like, okay, tell me, you know, what was a scam with Canadian Tire money? Former yeah, employees. I should just ask them. That's so true. I should just ask them. Because <gasps> oh that was the whole thing on their Patreon episode. If you're not a patron, we were discussing how Canadian Tire money, if you're, if you're not Canadian, you're not getting this fast forward, like 30 seconds. <laughs> how, what, what is up with the Canadian Tire money? How was oh, yeah. that? How is that legal? How can you give 20 bucks and they won't give you $5 in actual money? They'll give you $5. I think they were giving it as extra. No. Yeah, you're convinced. You're convincing me because you're convinced. I'm so convinced because I was a kid, like, Going over my dad, and I'd be That's like, "Some BS." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd Give me like, that lollipop. Work? I want one of those flavored lollipops, <laughs> and also I want my change in real money. <laughs> but my dad would never want to use like the Canadian Tire money because it was just like change, right? Like it wasn't a large amount. Yeah. Um, so he would just give it to me and then I'd be like, yay, like I have Canadian Tire money. We would keep money. it all and we would use it. We would keep it all and we would have yeah. like a big purchase that we wanted exactly. to get and we yeah. would use it. Anyways. <laughs> okay, let's bring it real down now. This week of fatality inquiry began in the death of a Calgary boy. He was 15 years old and the time that he died, he weighed less than 37 pounds. If you see the picture, which yeah. will be on our social media, this boy does not look 15 whatsoever. He looks so much younger. He looks like seven. Yes, yeah, for sure. So his name is Alexander Radida, and he died in May of 2013 of bacterial sepsis brought on by complications due to untreated diabetes and starvation. This is an intense case of child abuse. His parents had moved from BC to Alberta and were found guilty in 2017 of first degree murder. So that has been tried and concluded and that's done. However, people are wondering 
how this could have happened. So that's kind of what the inquiry is about. Witnesses at the trial testified that his parents refused to accept their son's diabetes and they failed to treat the disease and kept him isolated at home. So Alberta Provincial Court Judge Sharon Van Devine said on Monday that the fatality inquiry will seek to find what could have been done to save the boy's life and prevent other cases like this from happening. So this is really interesting. I'm going to try and follow this to see what comes from it. There were some government officials involved throughout the kid's life, including family services in the province of British Columbia and doctors and pharmacists. So what the hell? The judge said that she will be reviewing the facts related to the horror of this child's life and that her purpose is going to be to review to what extent the state itself could have intervened to save the life of the child. Yeah, it's really horrible. I mean, in a way, it's nice that this case has already been concluded. The parents have been found guilty. They're going the extra mile, which they have to. It's not like they're doing us a favor. They have mm. to. Come on, like something went really wrong here. Because yeah. he was even enrolled in Catholic homeschooling programs, which I don't think I realized that homeschooling involved still being enrolled. But obviously, I just well, never yeah. thought about it. But it makes it, I assume, worse for him because like children who are abused at home but still go to school, it kind of like raises red flags to like teachers, principals, yes. anyone to like make sure they're okay um for in sure. our home life but if he sees homeschooled i'm sure that yeah. wasn't helpful even like gives kids a break if, if nothing's yeah. being done because that was the whole thing at the beginning of the pandemic right like children were stuck in a home with their abusers and had no breaks mm-hmm. so this kind of with this kid here was living yeah so he was enrolled in homeschooling in september of 2009 for grade five but not a single piece of work from him was submitted Teachers and principals attempted to contact his parents through phone calls and letters throughout the school year, but were not able to reach them. But it seems like that's kind of all they were like, well, can't reach him. Michelle Depay, who's a vice principal at the School of Hope Online School, said that they made 25 attempts to reach the family and neither Alex or his three siblings ever submitted schoolwork. So he even had siblings living in the house. So I'm assuming when the whole trial went down and everything, they got hopefully placed in way better homes. Just because someone parents a child doesn't mean that they have their best interest. This case reminds us of this, that's for sure. The vice principal continued by saying that they now have electronic records for each student, but any information about a student not registering is only available in Alberta. He offered some possible solutions, including that a previous school board get an alert if a student is no longer registered anywhere, which I think, how is that not already happening? But it's Mm. good that we're talking about it. And he said there definitely needs to be some protocols on what to do if this happens and parents can't be reached. So it it sort of feels like probably everyone involved, it's also like, well, we did what we had to do. We did what we were doing. And then we stopped because there's it's not our job to keep going any further so they're trying to figure out whose job is it and can we all work together so that things like this do not happen anymore all right so we did get a new patreon member recently thank you so much michelle for joining us and subscribing to our patreon we really appreciate it from now on we will be posting our monthly episode on the last friday of every month so if you're listening to this episode on the day that we release it it will be up tomorrow so september 30th we will be discussing the case of jennifer pan michelle is also the listener who suggested the case for this week Uh, we're really excited to get into it there is not a lot 
of information out there about this case. So Michelle and I have been kind of talking back and forth. So we'll kind of insert some things about the victims that Michelle said. And I can't even find a picture. So we're hoping I'm going to deep dive. I'm going to keep looking. I'm hoping to find a picture uh, or some, some kind of visual for our social media. We're, you know, we want to put a face to the victims. So yeah, so I will stop talking. I'm just going to get right into it. Our case this week begins in 2001 in Mississauga, Ontario. Nusat Amiji is a 23-year-old student at York University, and she's studying communications. She's described as beautiful and extroverted. Nusat was very close with her younger brother. I think he was 21 years old, although I did see that he was maybe 19. But 21 makes a lot more sense for where he was in his life, so I'm just going to go with 21. And her 21-year-old younger brother's name was Naeem Amiji. The siblings grew up on what is described as a family compound in Saudi Arabia. Nusat and Naeem are described as quiet and responsible, and the two really looked after each other. I love, like, a close sibling bond. I was thinking about my brother. Yeah. And this is just like, when you're close with your sibling, you know exactly what we're talking mm -hmm. about here. They both came to Toronto to attend university, and this is where Michelle met Nusat. Michelle was nice enough to provide me with a pronunciation guide, so, so thank you for her because I would have no idea how to pronounce some of these names. But Michelle said the following about her and Nusat's relationship. I met her my first week at York University. She was super sweet and friendly. We were total opposites, but got along so well. We took the go bus together and had a first year humanities lecture and tutorial together. Coming from a Catholic school with a largely European background, she was the first Muslim I met and she taught me so much. So at the time of this case in 2001, Nusat had a man in her life, whether she wanted it or not. This was 34 year old Mehabubhoy Adamji. I am probably pronouncing this name wrong however i did not ask michelle for a pronunciation guide because i don't really care if i'm pronouncing this man's names wrong and you'll understand why pretty soon meha Bubhoy had proposed to nuset but nuset had turned him down nuset was young and it seems like she was unsure that she wanted to be with this man or not you know he was a lot mm -hmm. older than her but she's kind of like no like uh, she's shooing him away okay she's not interested they're not i don't think they're dating and he's proposing to her she's like no oh, god it uh, sir. Yeah. Mehabubhoy was related to the Amiji family by marriage, so his brother had married Nusat's sister, Farhana, in 1999. So basically, they're sort of like family friends. And he was desperate to marry Nusat, and this was for many different reasons. And I'm assuming from the way she described that she was beautiful inside and out. And the interest was probably romantic, however, marrying Nusat would solve a couple problems for him. He had some financial issues, and Nusat's family was described as very wealthy, and he had some issues with his immigration status. He had had two outstanding deportation orders issued against him. He was deported once in 1996 and again in 1999, following two failed asylum bids. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about asylum, so I got this information directly from the Government of Canada website. So seeking asylum is not a shortcut to get around normal immigration rules and procedures. There must be legitimate reasons why asylum is necessary or will not be granted. Canada respects its international obligations towards those who genuinely need help and protection. However, we must also make sure that all laws are followed to protect the safety and security and health of all Canadians. 
so this is what Miha Bupoy had applied for twice and was kind of rejected. So, you know, had been ordered to deport the country. However, I don't think he ever really did. Sneaky. So at the time, Nuset was living in what is described as a luxury condo with her brother. And the siblings' cousins were also living in this condo building. You know, it seems like a, a lot of the family had decided to sort of up and move to Canada for their studies. Um, you know, the family owned owned or rented the condo space there and that's sort of what they did because you know both siblings and the cousins were all there and I believe they were all studying. Leading up to the events that would turn Nuset's life into a true crime case, it was clear that Miha Bupoy was just not getting the message and Nuset was not interested in him. He was calling her over and over again and Nuset was a very nice young woman it seems like and she was trying to sort of let him down easy but she was getting frustrated like enough is enough. And she's reported to you know have told her cousin you know how many times do I have to tell him that there's nothing there you know he kind of you know needs to move on. Mm. Just as Nuset is getting more and more frustrated with this man, he's getting angrier and angrier because, you know, it's reported that he's feeling depressed about his immigration status. That's not <laughs> Nuset's problem. Yeah. And that he felt, you know, kind of jealous, I guess, that he felt that the Amiji family was, quote unquote, playing with his emotions. I feel like he probably also just wanted his brother's life marrying one of the sisters. Well, that's what I think. Like, what are you saying? Like, playing with emotions i'm kind of just thinking that he's like maybe his brother and sister-in-law are like oh why you know why don't you just ask it and you know or like maybe had been brought up at some point like yeah why don't you guys just you know you guys would be a great couple and even just that little thing probably to him made it seem like well i was told that was my wife so now i feel like you guys are playing with my emotions and my feelings yeah like you do not own her and neither will you ever and even if she did agree to marry you you wouldn't have so like back it up like none of this is her fault or her family's fault that you're going through a hard time but he you know is very fixated on nusa and that she is the solution to all of his problems but she was refusing to give him what he wants She's the solution for like the wrong reasons. Go fix Absolutely. what you have to fix. Then you won't feel yeah. so inclined to be so pushy and like exactly. angry. It, it feels like he thinks he's like entitled to yeah. her and the fact that she's refusing is like, excuse me. And it's like, excuse you. <laughs> like, Literally. So on the day of November 6, 2001, Nusa was doing a project for school. She's printing charts and graphics, you know, like good old university, and she's getting ready to go. It's around 8 a.m. And so this is reported differently in two instances, but I think it is the first option. So the first option is that Miha Buhoy actually had a key to the Amiji's condo because Nuset lived there with her brother Naeem and he could have had a key because they were family friends he could have lived nearby you know this could have been for many different reasons this is what I think is actually the correct you know chain of events because you guys will see as we get into it but option number two is that Nuset had got a phone call and it was Miha Buhoy and he was asking her to open the door of the apartment like she was there opening it Yes, like like he's calling her and, she, and he's like, open the door, I'm here, I'm here to talk to you or whatever. And then she goes and opens the door. But okay. I, I do not think that this is actually correct based okay. on clear timeline I read in a different article. I just needed to say it because it was reported mm-hmm. differently. So we're going to go with option one. Like I said, there was not a lot of information on this case. So 
it makes the most sense that he enters and locks the door from the inside. So he has a key, enters the apartment, closes the door, locks the door. He then cuts the cord to the living room phone with his knife. Uh-uh. He goes into Newset's room as she's printing off her assignment. He, I'm sure, surprises her and just starts stabbing her in the back. Just like that. Just like that. Just like that. No con- No confrontation. No, just... We don't actually really know because there's no surviving witnesses, but we know that he enters the room and stabs her in the back, which means she wasn't facing him. So we can assume that he totally surprised her. A hundred percent. And by the time she probably realized what's happening, I'm sure at some point she turns around. She stabbed in the abdomen many times as well as the face. A horrible, brutal attack. I'm not sure at this point if he knows that Naeem, her brother, is in the condo that morning. He was doing his homework in an adjacent room, and as he hears his sister scream, he tries to break open the door. At this point, Mehabuhoy turns his attention to Naeem, and Naeem tries to fight him off with a golf putter that he probably just had access to in the condo. Unfortunately, Naeem is stabbed several times, but manages to escape, so he's bleeding out he goes down two flights of stairs he's banging on doors looking for help and eventually i'm not sure if he tries or successfully pulls the fire alarm unfortunately before he could get any help he succumbed to his injuries and passed away it was reported in only one article that the dying naeem wrote the name of his killer with his blood on the carpet i'm not sure if this actually happened that would be bonkers a pretty incredible for him to uh, yeah add. oh my god both of them as bad as this could sound like I they're mean together it in a bad way I, they're yeah. together i i you yeah know? like that's yes it's a very you know, like, weird yeah. not comforting comforting it's just so many feelings all at once <sighs> we both have brothers i just yeah like uh Naeem was found dead with 18 stab wounds around 8.30 a.m. by first responders. A bloody trail led them directly to the 24th floor condo where they found Nusat's body. She had also died from her injuries. Investigators do their thing and an autopsy is done. They confirm that Nusat had been stabbed 56 times before her murderer covered her head with a knapsack, like twisted. There's a reason she did not want to marry him. She knew. After he murders two members of this family, it's reported that he drives himself to Niagara Falls in a suicidal state. He calls two friends who persuade him to return back to Toronto, and it's sort of unclear how they really caught him. You know, maybe it's Naeem's last-ditch effort to kind of point investigators towards the murderer. I'm not sure, but they, they, they know it's him. At first, when he's interviewed, he tries to blame the murderers on the Amiji family, saying that the siblings had been throwing knives at one another. Yeah, right. What the stuff that people, the stuff that people like, come up with is so ridiculous. Yeah. It's just like so stupid. And so disrespectful. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. Later, he told police that he couldn't remember if he had killed them. Yeah. So they were yeah. like, yeah, you're charged. They yeah. charged him with two counts of second-degree murder, which, second-degree? Yeah. Whatever, that's what they felt comfortable that they could probably get Second-degree murder? So, yeah. I think, I think when they're not 100% sure that the person could be found guilty of first-degree, they just go with second-degree. Yeah. Still out, damn. The siblings' aunt said the following when they heard the news. At first, we thought it was a terrorism incident, that someone had found out we were Muslim and attacked us. It was right after 9-11. We couldn't believe this man, a family member, had been arrested. So they basically considered him 
you know, a family member, like yeah. a close family friend. But also you said that Newset's sister was married to his brother. Yeah, so I guess they are they are so, kind of family. Yeah, they I, are family, like, basically. Just imagine being that brother. Oh, you wait, I got like, information about them. <gasps> okay. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. As little as articles as I could find, the ones I could find were tick with information. Like, there's a oh. lot of stuff in there. So thank like, you, Golden Mail. <laughs> And like imagine staying married to someone whose family did that to your I don't know man you're gonna have you're gonna have feelings later oh immigration officials can't really explain how he managed to stay in the country for years after being ordered to be deported twice mm-hmm. Réjean Catlon a citizenship and immigrations Canada official said the following we cannot speak on the specifics of the case but we can say that we take every step possible to execute a removal order. So it later came out that the reason that he had been denied asylum is that they found a kind of like, oh, like a lack of credibility, which doesn't surprise me. This guy just seems like kind of a, a garbage human. Yeah. And they didn't believe that the Sri Lanka police had targeted him because they thought that he was a sympathizer of the Liberation Tigers and Tamil Elam. So basically his, you know, his reason for seeking asylum was that he felt that the police were targeting him because they thought that he was part of this sympathizer group. I don't know a lot about Saudi Arabia politics, so I'm just not going to get into it. But, you know, the Immigration and Refugee Board were like, "Mm, this is not, this is not enough for us Mm -hmm. to kind of grant you asylum. Nuset and Naeem's cousin, who lived in the same building, said the following. Nuset would cook us meals. She took on the role of mother as she was the eldest. I looked up to her. The cousins ate dinner together the night before Nuset and Naeem died. (laughs) It was a pleasant, if unremarkable, evening filled with talk of their impending exams. It's reported that Mr. Amiji, which I'm assuming is Naeem, proudly showed his cousins his newly purchased fish tank, which he had filled with miniature frogs and orange and red exotic fish. The cousin continued by saying, We take more precautions now. We used our alarm. Our cousins had an alarm, but they never used it. We all felt so safe here. When the trial began, Meha Bubhoy did plead guilty. He admitted that he killed Nuset and her brother by stabbing them to death. He, however, kind of dragged this out. He waited sort of to the last minute until pleading guilty. It came to the point where they were about to select a jury. Mm-hmm. So he was dragging this out. I'm assuming that at first he pleaded not guilty, and then he was sort of like, okay, you know, whatever, guilty. During the proceedings, he apologized to the court and said that he had remorse for his actions. Bullshit. Yeah. Everyone in court heard that he was living in Canada illegally, and they were told that he wanted to marry Newset to solve his immigration and financial problems, as we discussed. Selfish. 100%. The Crown prosecutor said the following. Miha Bupoy blamed Newset and her family and saw them as a symbol of what he couldn't achieve in his own life. It was a misguided sense of pride and jealousy. It was a cruel, callous, and heinous act. Friends and family were in the courtroom when they heard the details of the attack. This included the siblings' parents, which must have been horrible. Mm-hmm. Many people were in tears when they heard how brutal the murders were. Meha Bubhoy was convicted to serve life in prison with no chance of parole for 15 years. I believe that after this, like if he does eventually get out, he's officially deported. Like he's gone. I know, parole 15 years. But he's he's not going to be, I don't think he'll be granted parole after 15 years. Well, Dang. I mean, that's probably already coming on, right? 2001? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So he's still in prison from what I can tell. Nusa and Naim's aunt said the following. No parent should outlive their children and no family should have to face these losses. Nusa was looking forward to meeting Mr. Wright to having children. Her aim in life was to be a public figure. She thought of Canada as the land of opportunity. She continued by saying that the Amici family doesn't take pictures anymore because it's a painful reminder that two of their core family members are missing from their lives. The case is reported to have had a really big impact on Toronto's close-knit community of, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, Boras and Shia sect of Islam, which both the Amijis and the Adamjis belong to. For Hana Amiji, Nusset's 32-year-old sister at the time, expressed disappointment at the failure for the immigration authorities to deport Mehabuhoy. She said the following. He put all his frustrations onto my sister. He was a failure in his life. Immigration should have deported him. For Hannah remains estranged from her husband, who took the side of Mehabupoy, his brother. Ew. Yeah. Like, this destroyed this family. How could someone, like, like, I get, what? She continues by saying that at the time, her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter had essentially lost her father to the situation. The family has made no efforts to reconcile. There is a big question mark over my life. Not a day goes by that I don't cry for my siblings. Nusa and Naeem's aunt told the court that the Amiji children had been raised together as toddlers and shared the same bedroom. Now they are laid to rest side by side. Their mother's heart bleeds and she suffers from an emptiness that can never be filled. Oh, I feel... How do I feel, you ask? Horrible. This case is so sad. Yeah. For what? Like because she doesn't want to marry you because you can't fix your own life it's so tragic because it really really like none of these cases need to happen but this really did not need to happen mm-hmm. and it affected so many people and to take out two siblings from a family and just like that loved each other so 30 dearly. minutes and the impact and the way that this has kind of you know rippled throughout the family is so horrible I'm, I'm sorry that this happened to them and i know that there's there's no silver lining it's just a big pit of despair and sadness but we hope that you know at least by i think being the first podcast to cover this case if you guys have heard of this case if you want to send me information i will gladly take it and read it or listen to it I couldn't find any source of media other than the Globe and Mail and a couple other kind of independent newspapers or journals that have covered this. So, so yeah, we, we want to get Nusa and Naeem's name out there. They're important. They're just as important as all the other sort of well-known Canadian crime cases. Mm-hmm. There should be more information about them. So we will we will look hard for pictures. We hope that we did this case justice. And, and thank you so much, Michelle, for suggesting it and being so kind and going back and forth with me in the DMs about how frustrated we both are that there's not more information about this case out there. I'm done. How, how are you um, feeling? Really sad. The amount of times he stabbed them, like the brother and sister love, like the whole family's torn apart because of it. It's just really disgusting. And I think also the fact that like, I lived in a condo in Toronto. All I could think of is like, if someone was at my door for help, like I would yeah. be scared and wouldn't let them in. But now hearing this, I'd be like, let's, let's get you in and like try to yeah. save you, you know, but yeah. Uh, yeah. That's interesting too. That like kind of stuck out to you. Cause yeah, if I heard someone, well, actually it happened. I told you guys like several episodes ago when the firemen were banging at my door Yeah, and I was like, oh, I'm not answering. Yeah. And they were just trying to check to make sure I didn't 
passed exactly. from carbon monoxide or yeah. whatever. And but if you see like, someone no. full blood banging at your door to get some help and you see it through your little peephole, you don't know really, but just like hearing a case like that, it's just like, it, yeah, you just need- don't trust everyone, but be on the lookout yeah. and lend a helping hand where you can. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I'm assuming people did try and help. I'm assuming yeah. some didn't, but some yeah. did. But it seemed like it, it was sort of too late. It's just a sad one. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really tough one. So this week, we're not sure exactly where we should be donating, uh, but we'd love to hear any organizations you guys would think would be a good place to donate um, in, you know, remembrance of this case and lend a helping hand in some sort of way. So leave us any suggestions and we'll definitely pick one to donate to this week. Our Instagram is at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed our podcast show today, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you had any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials, or you can email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. The few sources that we do have for this episode will be linked to the description. If you are curious, you can definitely take a look below. So thank you for joining us. And see you next time.